Have your Bibles with you this morning. Please open them up to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 29. I will be reading from Jeremiah, chapter 29, verses 10 through 13. I'll be reading from the King James Version. For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good work word toward you, in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Always glad to be able to come together with uh, the White Oak Congregation and worship. Uh, I appreciate Ron uh, mentioning the, the uh, open forum we're going to have for the community. And, and I'd failed to mention this myself, but if you do have a question, submit that question. And uh, invite your neighbors. Invite your neighbors to come and, and gather a question from them if you're able to do that and and then when it's uh, Fort Oglethorpe's night, let's go down and, and support that congregation in their, uh, their open forum as well. Jeremiah 29, Jeremiah talks about the mind of God in, in a sense, the thoughts of God. And when we look at the world as a whole and we, and we read the information put out for us and, and we hear what those who study populations and... Uh, things like that, we learn that there are more than 7.5 billion people in the world today. 7.5 billion. I believe by uh, 2100, the estimated population of the world will be 10 or 11 billion. And uh, also, as I was uh, studying some of the facts about the world's population, many have suggested that the world cannot sustain 10 billion people. And so, uh, you know, I guess that's something to think about. But when we think of the world's population, we also learn that there are 360,000 or approximately 360,000 people born every day. And at the same time, there are about 151,000 people who die every day. So that gives us a net increase of more than 208,000 people born each day. That is an enormous number. That is a magnificent number. And when we think of it, that's hard to imagine over 7.5 billion people all at one time. So let's think of it this way. If we took 100 people and stood them shoulder to shoulder, and maybe that might cover somewhere close to 200 feet maybe, and we had another row of a hundred people, shoulder to shoulder, and another row of a hundred people, and stacking them one right behind the other, we would almost have enough people alive in the world today to stretch all the way around the equator of the earth. That's how many people seven and a half billion is. That's a lot of people. And when we think of that, and we understand that that's a huge number, and that we as individuals are just one of that number, maybe we begin to think that we're not so significant in this world. 
Maybe we are actually insignificant. We may feel as if God doesn't really have time to focus on us as individuals. Almost as if we were a needle in a haystack, it becomes very easy to lose sight of that. I think that's what a lot of people in the world believe. I mean, I believe that maybe some people think that God is too busy running the universe, making sure everything's working exactly the way it ought to work, and therefore He doesn't have time to focus on us as individuals, or that He can't be concerned about us as individuals. I think that may be one reason that the the vast majority of the people in the world find it so easy to live a sinful lifestyle. There are a lot of people in the world that feel like they can't see God, therefore God cannot see them, and if He does exist, He's too busy to pay attention to me. After all, there's seven and a half billion people in the world, right? China and India each are getting close to one and a half billion in each country. That's a lot of people. But our passage teaches us this morning that God not only knows each of us, but He thinks about each of us at all times. In the immediate context of the passage, of course, God is talking about the 70-year Babylonian uh, imprisonment of Israel by the king Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he's talking about. He wanted them to understand that he understood who they were, where they were, and what was going on in their lives. And that's the application in the immediate context. But is there an application for us today? Well, there better be. And of course, there always is. There is an application for us today. Now, I want us to primarily focus this morning on verse 11 of our passage. And I want us to be encouraged by the words of the prophet. And I want us to understand exactly what he meant. And I borrowed the words of Jeremiah as a title this morning. What does God think of us? What does God think of us? And we can go about that in a lot of different ways. That's kind of a, a, a general question. It could mean different things. But what does God think of us? I guess most of us at one time or another have felt like God has forgotten us for whatever reason whether something happened in our lives or whether, uh, you know, we did something that caused a problem or whatever the case may be, maybe we've just felt like we have fallen through the cracks and God has forgotten about us. But God never, never stops thinking about us. He never stops thinking about us. I want us to consider this morning what God thinks about us, when He thinks about us, and what are the results of His thinking about us. But how do we go about doing that? How can we go about dissecting and understanding God's mind? Because we can't understand the mind of God unless He provides that for us. Well, to do that this morning, I want us to ask three questions. I want us to try to find the answer to three questions. And I believe when we find those answers, it will explain to us just a little better about what God thinks about us. The first question this morning that we're going to ask is, does God really know us? Does God really know us? After all, 
there are more than 7.5 billion of us in the world? Of course, the answer is yes. He knows us and He knows each of us intimately. He knows us intimately. We may not realize that. But Jeremiah recorded that God knows us and He knows the thoughts of which He thinks concerning each of us. That's an amazing statement. That's almost overwhelming to understand that God can understand and coherently keep track of every single thought that He has concerning the people of the world. Of course, He was telling Israel again in the immediate context that He understood what was happening to them in Babylon. He understood that they had pain and suffering and what was going on. But He also understood that they chose to go there through their behavior. And He wanted them to know that He was working in their lives and when He was finished working in their lives, He would have impacted them for the better and He would have changed their lives. You remember prior to going into Babylonian captivity, they were a nation of idolaters. They worshipped anything and everything other than the God of heaven. But when they returned, after 70 years, they became a nation who worshipped only the God of heaven. And that was exactly what His purpose was. And they never turned to idolatry again. It never happened. They had a lot of issues in their lives. They made a lot of mistakes, but idolatry was never one of them. During that time, when they believed God had forsaken them, He was actually making them better and stronger for His glory. There was a purpose behind that. But how can we know that that God knows each of us intimately? How can we be assured of that fact? God has His mind on us. God has His mind on us, not just as a member of a vast population of mankind, but as individuals. He understands each of us. Know what, uh, notice what Jesus said, Matthew 10, beginning with verse 29. He said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered? Do not fear, therefore, you are more value. You are of more value than many sparrows. See, God places a great value on all of His creation. Not just humanity. He places a great value on everything He's created. After all, He created it. He created the animals and the atmosphere and and the things of that nature. He puts a great value on creation. But He puts a greater value on humanity. Nothing escapes His attention. Nothing. Nothing's going to happen in this world that He's not aware of. In fact, He's so concerned with each of us He knows the numbers of the hairs on our heads. Such a minute detail. I don't even know if if we have the capability in our world to count that, something like that. I don't know if we have the capability to keep up with something like that, but what does that really mean when he makes that statement? If he is concerned with something so insignificant as that in comparison to humanity, He's really concerned with us, isn't He? We are God's greatest creation. We were the ultimate creation. When He created mankind, He stopped creating. He had created all that He wanted. Now we may seem like that is overwhelming 
to us that God would understand and know things about us so intimately that maybe we have refused to acknowledge ourselves or maybe we have tried to forget those things about ourselves. But it ought to really be comforting to know that God is concerned with us and that He knows us so intimately. Now, He knows us that way. He knows us intimately. But there's something I think maybe we overlook. Not only does God really know us intimately, He knows us instantly, doesn't He? Instantly. Nothing that happens in this world sneaks up on God. Notice what David confirmed. Psalm 139, 1-19. He said that God is everywhere, watching everything all the time. We can't get away. We can't go low enough. We can't go high enough. We can't get in the darkest places enough to, to hide from God. Now the psalmist here he makes the point that God knows everything about us. But here's something he's not trying to intend. That God chose our direction in life. He's not intending that God put us on a path to a certain destination. That's not at all what he meant. Notice Psalm 139 verse 16. Your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. There are so many religious leaders in the world, so many denominations in the world that teach, and they'll use this passage of Scripture and say, well, there you go, God created all things, and He chose a certain people who were going to be saved, He chose a certain people who were going to be lost. Well, if God did that, He doesn't even necessarily need to know us intimately, does He? Is it necessary that God know us instantly if He had already chosen for us before the foundations of the world, whether we were going to be saved or whether we were going to be lost. So many in the religious world teach that. Now notice what the psalmist did say in that passage. He said that God fashioned the days. What does that mean? He created the days. He created time. He created the things of this world, the physical creation. He was the cause and the force behind all of that. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say a thing in the world about whether we're lost or we're saved. But simply because he fashioned the days, so many people in the world have said, there you go. God chose the elect to be saved and he chose the non-elect to be lost. Well, in some sense that's correct in that we can become elect if we choose to do that. And he chose a group of people to be elect. And anyone has that opportunity. And he chose those who were not elected through their own choice to be lost. Now, we decide our outcomes, right? Just because God created time in the world doesn't mean he chose the path on which we go. We make that choice. That's why Peter warned this, 2 Peter 1.10 Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Well, who was Peter writing the letter to? Well, he tells us, brethren. I think most people in the religious world would confirm that brethren are of the elect. So notice what Peter told the brethren. Do these things, and prior to that, he talked about those things we refer to as the Christian graces. 
If you'll do those things, you can make your calling and your election sure and you won't fall. So what does that intend? Well, you might fall if you don't do that, right? So you can choose to become unelect or unelected. So that's not what the psalmist is talking about. Any action taken, God knows about it before it ever happened, before we ever did it. That's not taking that away from God. God knows in His omniscience if we'll be saved or if we'll be lost. But that doesn't take our free will away. We choose to be saved or to be lost. So God has that. If He's aware of of the falling of every sparrow, He's aware of every action that we take, right? But here's something else we need to understand. I think God has has received, uh, we might say, a bad rap in this life. Someone says, well, God is sitting up in heaven and He's just waiting to pounce on those who disobey Him. After all, He sees everything. He's always watching. It's as if God's a spy of some sort and He's trying to snoop around and He's trying to find out every little secret like our next door neighbors sometimes, right? They try to snoop around and they try to find out everything that's happening across the road. Now that doesn't happen in my neighborhood, but it might. But that's not what God does. God isn't snooping around. He doesn't have to snoop around. He's simply aware. He simply knows. He's not sneaking anywhere. God doesn't sneak up on people. God just is. And so He knows about all things that we do, whether it's good or whether it's bad. That's what the psalmist is talking about. God wants us all to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4, and He wants us all to make that decision for ourselves. He's just simply very aware of what is going on in creation, Proverbs 15, verse 3. So we ask the question, does God really know us? Oh, He knows us. He knows us intimately. He knows us instantly. But here's the second question we want to answer. What is revealed to us through God's knowledge of us? What do we learn from that? Since God knows the details of our lives and He knows every single thing about us, that must include the sins of this world. There are people who believe God can't see, or they can't see God, therefore God can't see them. That's not the fact, is it? God's aware of every sin that has ever been committed, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, and He's no less aware of the sins being committed in the world today, Hebrews 4.13. He is simply aware of what is going on. He is the great Creator. David said this, Psalm 90, verse 8. He said, Thou hast set our iniquities before Thee, our secret sins in the light of Thy countenance. I think if people or the people of the world, if they would put forth the effort to come to the better understanding that God is aware of what's going on, that it can't get dark enough, the ceiling isn't thick enough, the door isn't wide enough, that God doesn't know what we're doing, I really believe that the behaviors of this world would be altered. If we truly understood, God can see us. Think about it. Do children normally misbehave in the very sight of their parents or are they a little bit sneaky about that? I was 
I was a little sneaky about it. I didn't want to misbehave right in the presence of my father. I knew that wouldn't last very long. And so if we understood that God is watching us, we ought to feel ashamed, shouldn't we? If we involve in some activity that he is not uh, that he does not promote. God sees us. He sees the sins. I think with that truth in mind, it's very easy to see the futility in trying to hide our sins from God. Now, we might hide sins from each other, but we can't hide them from God. That's why Solomon counseled this. Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. God's knowledge of us reveals to him and to us that he's very aware of our sins. But there's something else that it reveals to us. He's very aware of our situations. He knows what's going on in our lives. He knows what we're facing. He knew the sufferings of Israel, didn't he? He knew the, the, uh, about the wickedness and the cruelty of Babylon. He was very aware of what was going on in their day. He's very aware of what's going on in our day. He hadn't forgotten Israel. Just because he allowed them to go into captivity and, and authored them going into captivity doesn't mean he didn't love them or that he had forgotten them or that he wasn't aware of them. Again, nothing we endure in this life sneaks up on God. It, 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 it isn't like he comes to the, uh, the realization, well, so-and-so is suffering in some way. He knows that we're suffering if we suffer. When sin came into the world, it came into the world by the choice of the first couple. God didn't cause the suffering of this world. That's another aspect that the denominational world, and many in the church, I've heard say this, well, it all happens for a reason. Well, that doesn't make sense to me. Let me ask you something. What is the purpose that God has in allowing uh, an infant child to die of some terrible disease in this life today? What exactly does it do for the betterment of humanity for a faithful Christian who's working hard in the Lord's kingdom, doing wonderful works, converting people, to be killed in a car crash in this world today? Where is the benefit of that? And You'll hear people say, well, it happens all for a reason. Well, bad things happen in this world because sin came into the world. And ever since Adam and Eve, people have made the same poor choices to disobey God. And therefore, the result of poor choices, of sinful choices, are bad things happen. God didn't cause the bad thing to happen. Now, we have to understand, God caused Israel to go into captivity. That was bad for them. But that was a punishment that was placed on them because of what they chose to do. That's the difference, right? Only good and perfect gifts come down from the Father of lights, James 1.17. But some people will read Paul's words, Romans 8.28, and completely contradict what James said. We all know what, what Paul said. He said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And they'll take that statement, and they'll say, Well, the hurricanes that just recently hit the Gulf Coast and, and killed all of those innocent people, many of them not even of the age of accountability, many of them faithful Christians in the Lord's church, that was all for some good something to happen. I want to know what that good thing was. 
What was that good thing that came from that? Now, is it possible for someone to lose a family member and them to begin to think about their mortality and eternity and then maybe they obey the gospel? Absolutely. But did God cause that family member to die so that person could be saved? That's ridiculous to even consider something like that. That individual left this life for whatever that reason was. Maybe they had just simply reached the end of their lives and they had lived a full life and and their body just simply wore out. What if someone had broken into their home and in the process of robbing their home killed that individual? Was that something God chose to do so another person could be saved? Absolutely not. That's ridiculous to consider that. Now there may be a benefit that results from that, an individual looking at that and and considering their own immortality, and then saying, well, I need to get my life in order. But God doesn't cause bad things to happen in this world. What He's talking about in Romans 8 is, you endure the sufferings that were about to happen. This is sometime around the middle 60s. Nero was punishing or was persecuting the Christian, and Paul is encouraging them, you stay faithful, all things work to good in the end, for those who love God. And that means if you remain faithful, you'll get into heaven. That doesn't mean God caused Nero to punish and persecute Christians. That doesn't make sense. A righteous and a just God does not punish the innocent. Right? It doesn't happen that way. We should be comforted, though, knowing that God is very aware of our situations individually. That ought to comfort us. And He's working in our lives through providence, and we don't know exactly how He does that. But we know He does it. That's why Jesus made the statement He did recorded in Matthew 6, 33. He said, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. He'll take care of us. That doesn't mean we won't suffer in this life, but that means in the end He'll take care of all of us who are faithful. Since God has such an intimate knowledge of us, what does He do with that information? You ever thought about that? How does He react to what He knows? That's our third question. How does He react to to what He knows? God moves in reaction to the knowledge that He has of each of us. God has reacted in the past, hasn't He? He's reacted in the past. Notice what He did with Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 7, He chose Israel above all the other nations in the world. He chose Israel to be the nation through whom He would send the Christ. He delivered them from Egyptian bondage. He guided them through the wilderness all the way over into the promised land. He helped them to conquer the land and to take it as a possession of their own. And He did all of that because He had a design on that plan that would bring them to an expected end. He's done the exact same thing for all the peoples of chosen above all other institutions in the world, the church. The one for which Christ died, Acts 20, 28. He chose that institution above all religions in the world because it's His religion. He has guided us through the wilderness of sin by Christ, He's told us how to enter into the promised land. And I believe that the promised land 
is not a shadow of heaven, but is a shadow of the church. Not any fighting in heaven. Right? There's going to be no tears or sorrows or things like that. But do we have to fight while we're in the church? Well, Paul said to fight the good fight of faith. Do we, do we endure persecution as members of the church? Absolutely. And so he's guided us into the church through a certain process. He's delivered all people from the world from the bondage of sin if we will allow that to happen. He's given us the way and shown us what we must do. Christ came into the world at the perfect time in history, Galatians 4.4. 4. He did so because it was the eternal purpose of God, Ephesians 3, verse 11. And that eternal purpose was that Christ came to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. And He met the deepest need that any person or peoples of this world has ever had. And that plan was fulfilled when Christ died on the cross and walked out of a dead man's tomb alive after three days. And then His ascension back to heaven ensured that He would never die again. God has reacted to the knowledge He has of each of us in the past. But you know, maybe the most important question that we have in considering what God knows about us and what He thinks of us is how will I react to what God knows about me and what I know about God in the present? That may be the most important question. What good would it do for any person that Christ died on the cross if they're not obedient to what He's asked us to do? What good does that do? That doesn't do any good at all, does it? That wonderful sacrifice given to the world, if we ignore that sacrifice, we simply tread under our feet the blood of Christ. We ignore His commandments. And that's not what God wants. God continues to react to the knowledge He has of us, to what He thinks of us, in the present. He's given us a plan. Now we have to react to the plan. Am I going to believe that Jesus is who He said He was? John eight twenty four. Am I going to repent of past sins? Luke 13, 3. Am I going to make the good confession before men that He is who He said He was? Matthew 10, 32 and 33. Acts 8, 37. Am I going to willingly be immersed in water so that my sins can be forgiven? Acts 2, 38 and Acts 22, 16. Am I going to react in such a way that I live a faithful life for Him from now on until my life is over or He returns? That's the reaction we have to consider, right? We have to consider that. God promised life if we'll just come to Him, Matthew eleven twenty eight, And He's always standing at the door, isn't He? He's always knocking. We talked about that in class this morning. All we have to do is open. God the Father is always standing at the end of the road watching for the prodigal to return, Luke 15. All we have to do is react to it. He has already reacted. So we have to match that. What does God think of us? What do we learn when we understand what God thinks of us? Well, I think we learn that He really knows us. He's revealed to us what His actions are, what His thinking is, what His knowledge has done. We learn what his reaction is. He's plainly told us. But we also know how we should react to the knowledge of him. And I think that's the question we need to ask today. Have I reacted appropriately? Have I obeyed the gospel the way in which it is described in the Bible? 
And if I have, and yet become unfaithful, what's my reaction to God's knowledge of me and my knowledge of Him? Am I willing to repent of that, confess those sins, ask God to forgive me, whether publicly or privately? Consider that question today as we stand and as we sing.